Good morning, Hope Hill. Good to see everybody today. We've got a great song. Now we have a great song. This is called Hosanna. This is the this is Holy Week, the beginning of Holy Week. Today's Palm Sunday. Glad you're here. We'll sing this song. A lot of churches have been singing for a long time. Rudy's gonna lead us. It goes like this: Praises rising. Praises rising. Eyes are turning to you. We turn to See you. 
Because when we see you, we find strength to face the day. And in your presence, all our fears are washed away. Because when we see you, we find strength to face the day. I'm Billy. I'm the worship pastor. So glad you're here today at Hopevale. And uh, boy, uh, I say this often, but you know, God is so very honored with you taking time to say, you know what, God, I want to put you first in my life today and my family's life. And uh, I hope that you sense that today. And I hope you sense a, a great deal of his presence uh, throughout the morning. So glad you're here. Hey, while you're standing, uh, say hi to somebody around you. Uh, meet somebody you don't know. We'll see you back in a second. Thanks. Good to be with you this morning. If you're visiting with us here at Hopeville, we just want to say an extra special welcome to you. And if you want to stop by our Welcome Center afterwards, we have a gift for you. So um, uh, go ahead and do that. Um, next weekend, we are going to be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ at our Easter services here. And we are so excited and so pumped for those services. Yeah. We have four identical services next um, Sunday, 8 o'clock, 9.30, 11, and 12.30. We also have our very first Easter service out in Bay City at 10.30. So, yeah, very exciting stuff going on there. Um, we have all kinds of things planned for that morning. We have kids programming for birth through pre-kindergarten. Um, for every one of those services, we have the venue that's going to be open for additional seating at the the 9.30 and 11 o'clock services, because those are traditionally our, our more full services, um, so that'll be available. And if you're a, a regular attender here at Hopevale, here's what we would ask. We would ask that um, if you could 
consider maybe going to the 8 o'clock or going to the 1230 service to make room for people who are visiting us, that would be very, very appreciated because those services are tend, tend to be the more full services, those 930 and 11 o'clock. So if we could kind of fill up all those services, that'd be awesome because we want as many people to be able to come to our Easter services that can fit through our doors and fit in our seats. And so that would be great if you could do that. Um, so if you want to, we also want to help, like help you invite your friends, invite people and coworkers and all that. So we have uh, cards out at the Welcome Center that if you're thinking, how can, I, how can I make this a little bit easier of an invite, go grab some of those cards. Think about somebody that you want to invite next week and invite them along with you. I think that could be a really great experience both for that person you want to invite and for you to be able to share the resurrection of Jesus with them. We also have Armani Thursday services this week um, on Thursday at 6 and 7.30, so we want to invite you out to that. Last weekend, I got to be a part of something really amazing. We were able to take over 200 middle school, high school, and adult um, people to Lake City, Michigan to do our annual youth retreat, and there's pictures up here of that. It was an amazing weekend. We had so much fun worshiping God, learning all about God's rhythm and how he wants us to get back into rhythm with him. We had several kids give their lives to Christ, several kids make decisions about recommitting their lives to Jesus and taking big spiritual steps in their lives. So it was an amazing weekend. And here's the deal. I want to say this in a very kind of careful way, but as, as we are able to give, um, what we're going to do in a little bit here, it enables these kind of things to happen. Because um, our giving actually helps decrease the cost for those kids to be able to go to things like retreat. And so it makes it possible for more and more kids to be able to go. We were able to scholarship almost 25 kids to go to retreat, which that's an amazing amount of kids who get to go who may not have been able to go. And maybe some of those kids were able to make decisions for Jesus. So just wanted to say that your giving matters. It really does. And you're making a big impact through even maybe a small little way. And so as we um, prepare to do that this morning, as we prepare to give, then the ushers come forward. Let's go to God in prayer and thank him for what he has been doing and what he did at that retreat and what he will continue to do with the, uh, the offerings that we give. God, we, um, we thank you for who you are. And we thank you that what this week leading up to Easter represents your son going to the cross, dying on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, but not just staying there dead, he rose grave and we're so excited to celebrate that next weekend. May that never be something that we just kind of take for granted or rush by, but it would be something that caused us to pause, to contemplate, and to love you more and more. And God, we're so excited what you were able to do in the lives of teenagers last weekend at retreat. And God, that, that you would continue to, to push them and to grow them to become more and more like your son, Jesus. And so God, we we're excited to see what is going to happen with their lives as they continue to grow older. And God, I just, I'm so thankful for my friends here who, who sacrificially give and who um, give out of the overflow of their heart because they know that you're going to take what we give and, and do things like that and change lives with it. And so God, we give out of a cheerful heart knowing that you're going to do some amazing things with it. We love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Sam. So Pastor Sam just talked about changing lives. And um, this week, uh, as I said before, if you didn't hear me say it, if you're just coming in, uh, today is Palm Sunday. And Jesus came in riding on a donkey into Jerusalem to change lives. And there was a crowd that welcomed him that shouted, Hosanna. 
blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they laid down palm branches as sort of a red carpet for him and for this donkey to come in. And about five days later, it was this exact same group of people that said, uh, you uh, save us and Hosanna, blessed are you. And it's that same group of people that said, crucify him. And we have, we have only one king but Caesar. And um, later after Jesus died, uh, many recognized what they had done and that they had sentenced Jesus to a death that really should have been theirs in paying for the sin that should have been theirs to pay for. And so why? Why did Jesus do this? He did it because he loves us so very much. He said, hey, kid, let me tell you something. You messed it up, but I'm going to take it for you. I'll do this for you. You don't have to do it. And I love you this much that I'll go to a cross and I'll die on, I'll die on that tree. And I'll tell you what, you'll, have, you'll be able to have life eternally with me. I don't get that. It's, it just, it's, it's, it's stunning. It stuns me. I hope it stuns you this morning as we consider that. We're going to sing this song. We're going to teach it to you this morning and just remain seated while we, te- while we sing it. And we may get you up a little later and uh, we'll go nuts and, and uh, sing to the Lord together. But it's, the song is called, Who You Say I Am. And these beginning lyrics say, who, who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Sun 
sing, I'm chosen. Living 
So God, in this spirit of worship, we thank you for our, our lives, our day, and this time to be at church, and this time to experience your presence, this time for everything else to just kind of fade away. God, as we um, learn again of this hope that, that uh, we have, and hear it again from different scriptures in a different way from Pastor Dan, we pray for him. We ask that the words of his mouth will give you praise. And so, God, if we need a, a still, small voice today, or if we need a crushing wave, would you be that through your spirit, we pray? Thank you, Lord, for this time to worship you and this time to exalt you, this time to lift you up, this time to glorify you, this time to kind of get out of the way and forget about what's coming up for the rest of the day, but just to be here with you. Thank you, God, so much. In your name, we all pray and say, amen. God bless you, friends. Have a seat. Good morning, everyone. Boy, it has been a great Sunday of worship, hasn't it? So here we are. I'm Dan Davis, senior pastor here at Hopevale Church. So glad you're with us today on this Palm Sunday. I want to welcome those of you who are worshiping with us in Bay City. Great to have you on board. And as you heard from Pastor Sam in Saginaw, as you heard from Pastor Steve in Bay City, Easter's next Sunday, April 1st. Four services in Saginaw, 8, 9.30, 11, and 12.30, and our very first Easter service in Bay City at 10.30 at John Glenn High School. Can't wait. Can't wait that we're going to get to do that together and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. That's what's coming up this next week. But last week, uh, thinking of that, we began a four-week Easter series entitled Hope for Every One. Hope for Every One. And as the title suggests, it's a series about hope. But when we say hope, I, I'm not thinking about a vague, abstract concept. No, I'm thinking about a personal, life-giving reality, right? That the hope Jesus offers us is truly a hope for everyone. And that includes you, that includes me. And so in this series, we're looking at stories from the Bible about Jesus. Stories where he is bringing hope, not just to the world, not just to the many, not even just to the few, but hope for the one, for the individual, for the man for the woman, for the person who's just like us. And so last week, we started by looking at two intertwining stories of a man named Jairus, whose 12-year-old daughter was dying, as well as that of an unnamed woman who struggled with this chronic bleeding condition for 12 years as well. And it was her story in particular that showed us that one of the biggest enemies we have toward our hope is simply the passage of time. Right, the passage of time that as life remains hard, that as our suffering continues, that as our circumstances only get worse over time, tries to wear us down and to rob us of our hope. And it takes us to the place where we feel like it's just too late. That for us, it is just too late. That's what the passage of time devoid of any real hope can do to us. 
But as we saw with this woman and the miraculous healing that came about her desperate faith in a supernatural savior, the message is clear that with Jesus, it's not too late. It's not too late. And like her, yeah, we may have chased other solutions in the past to try to fix our problems, to try to ease our suffering. But it is only the true and lasting hope that we find in Jesus, his beautiful, wonderful, powerful name that makes all the difference in the world. Daughter, Jesus says to this woman, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. 2,000 years later, Jesus says the same thing. And while he may not bring us the healing we want this side of heaven, he can give us that same kind of peace, that same kind of freedom that we're looking for when we reach out to him with sincere and honest faith, right? It's not too late. Today then, as we continue on in this series, we're gonna look at a, another story from Jesus. But this is actually a story about a story that Jesus tells to a broad listening audience filled with people from all walks of life. And let me tell you that when it comes to storytelling, Jesus of Nazareth, he was the most engaging storyteller ever. He was. People hung on his every word. And yet Jesus was also very purposeful with the stories he told. See, he didn't tell stories simply to entertain a crowd. No, he also wanted to provoke thought, right? Get people thinking. He wanted to encourage hearts. And he also wanted to challenge the existing religious norms of what people thought was and was not considered acceptable to God. And by the time Jesus would finish a story, some loved it. Some hated it. Others were confused and others still were, want, were, were left wanting more, right? They, they, they were like, okay, Jesus, what are you trying to say? But whatever the response, was be, the response was, people always walked away changed by that encounter with Jesus for the better or for the worse. So what made Jesus such an effective storyteller? Well, the stories Jesus told were always based on something that people could relate to. More specifically, we call these stories parables. And there are plenty of parables in the Gospels, in the New Testament that Jesus told. And as you can see here, a parable is simply a simple earthly story with a profound heavenly meaning. A simple earthly story with a profound heavenly meaning. So Jesus would, would take this object... Okay, he'd take this situation from everyday life that his listeners could relate to, and then he would tell a story or make an analogy to connect it to a deeper spiritual truth. That's a parable. And then sometimes after the parable, he would spell everything out after he told it, explain what he meant. But other times he'd just let them fill in the blanks and draw their own conclusions. But either way, people usually got the gist of what he was trying to say. And that's why Jesus used parables so often. See, his style wasn't that of, you know, the college professor who just backs up the truck and dumps this load of factual information, hoping you get a fraction of it. No, Jesus told his parables to make a point, and his points were always very pointed. They forced his listeners to make some kind of choice. And it's certainly the case with the parable we're going to look at today. It's found in the Gospel of Luke in, in the New Testament. Luke is one of the four biographical books in the Bible about the life of Jesus. Last week, 
we looked in the Gospel of Mark. This week, the Gospel of Luke, more specifically chapter 15. So if you have a Bible with you or you have the Bible on your smartphones, you can turn with me to Luke 15. Now, the parable itself that we're going to read starts a little later on in the chapter, but we're going to begin with verse 1 because it sets the context for the story, and it gives us some of the who, what, where, when, why, how that leads up to this parable. So here we go, Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. Says this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, him being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man, speaking of Jesus again, receives sinners and eats with them. So remember earlier when I told you that Jesus told stories to a broad listening audience filled with a wide array of people from all walks of life? Well, verse one's a great example of that. Because the different groups that are listening to Jesus here couldn't have been further from each other in every possible way. So on the one hand, you had this group, the tax collectors and the sinners, right? A hodgepodge collection of outcasts from the fringes of society, right? They were the kind of people that everyone else looked down on. They're immoral, they're irreligious, and everybody knew it, including them. That's one of the groups that was gathered that day listening to Jesus. On the other hand, though, you have this group called the Pharisees and the scribes. They represented the religious insiders of the day. They had power, they had prestige, they had piety, they had purity. They knew God's rules and they appeared to keep God's rules through their rigorous moral actions in all things at all times, right? So like I said, polar opposites. Over here, you've got the far from God crowd, right? And then over here, you've got the near to God crowd, or so it seemed. That's who was there listening to Jesus. And don't underestimate the intimidating impact that this near to God crowd would have had on the far from God crowd, right? We see it in verse 2, this man eats with them, right? Sinners. Can imagine it being delivered with this tone of kind of, you know, religious superiority, judgmental, and probably spoken so loud that they could hear it themselves, that in case they were actually starting to feel good about themselves by what Jesus was teaching and and doing for them, this audible grumbling from the near-to-God crowd would have made sure to put them back in their place, right, And, and, and communicate the message, you know who you are, so just stay right there. And so the stage is set, right? This is the group of people listening to Jesus, and he launches then into an extended message, three different parables that center around one common theme, right? Three different parables that center around one common theme. The first parable is the story about a shepherd who is watching over a flock of a hundred sheep. 100 sheep, but the shepherd loses one of the sheep, and so he leaves the 99 that he already has, and he diligently searches until he finds that one lost sheep. And when he does find that one lost sheep, he rejoices greatly. Now, the second parable is similar. It's a story about a woman with 10 coins, 10 coins, and she loses one of the coins, and so she rips apart her home looking for that one lost coin until she finds it. And when she does, again, there is much rejoicing. And then after both these parables, Jesus draws this same conclusion, that he says, likewise, there is great rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents of their ways and turns back to God no matter how lost they may be. 
That right there is the pointed point of those first two parables. For both groups listening to Jesus that day, the far from God crowd and the near to God crowd. So Jesus starts, right, with a parable about 100 sheep. He then moves to this parable about 10 coins. And then finally, he's going to tell a parable about two very different individuals who both happen to be brothers. Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 11. And he, again, this is Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, back in Jesus' day, I wouldn't have been surprised if there was this audible gasp coming from the crowd after he said this, right? Gasp. Can you give me an audible gasp? Wow. <laughs> wow. You have set the bar for 1115. I'm just telling you right now. And Bay City too. Okay. Yeah. Audible gas. Why? Because what the son asks of the father is completely out of line and the ultimate in disrespect, right? Especially because he's saying something like this, dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. So give me my inheritance now because your money is more important to me than you are, right? Now, I can say this as a parent. I mean, talk about a dagger to the heart, right? You know, if I'm the dad, I, I think I would have quoted that famous Bible verse, I brought you into this world and I can take you out, right? <laughs> okay, that's not actually in the Bible, okay? But you get the point, right? We would have been mad, but that's not how this father responds. No, he obliges his son's request and literally gives him half the inheritance right then and there. Makes for an incredible story, but kids, don't try that at home, okay? Just going to say it up front. Verse 13, not many days later, the youngest son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, let's be clear. This phrase, reckless living here, that's how you describe it in the Bible, because if you spelled out all the details that this young man did with his inheritance, it would make us blush. It really would. Because money can get you what you want, and he wanted it all. And also, don't miss that phrase earlier on here where it says that he went to a far country. Because for Jesus, this farness isn't just literal and geographical. It's also symbolic and spiritual. Because this son wants to get away from his dad in every possible way, including rejecting his father's values and, and blowing his inheritance on reckless living. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So this is just the perfect storm, right? That right after he runs out of cash, the country then plunges into a deep recession. There are no jobs to be had. There's not even food to be had. It's that bad. Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, remember when I told you that Jesus was the best storyteller ever? Well, this is a great example of that, because when he's telling this, he doesn't just mention any animal here. No, Jesus purposefully chooses pigs. 
pigs because he knew how offensive and disgusting these religiously unclean animals would be to Jewish ears. See, back in the Old Testament, God looked at his chosen people and said, you are forbidden to eat pigs. No pigs, no pork, no ham, not even bacon, people, right? No, pigs, unclean, bad. And so this, this, this younger son has not only disrespected his father, he's not only squandered his inheritance, but now he has sunk to the depths of feeding pigs, and he's having to fight them for the food. What, just simply to survive? You read this, and it's hard to come away thinking anything but this has got to be the lowest of the low, right? The lowest of the low. Now, before we go on with this parable, I, I want to think for a moment about our own lives, right? And what it means for us to be at the lowest of the low. You ever been there? You ever hit rock bottom before? I know I have. I have. Now, it might look different for each of us, but I think we've all had those times where we look at our lives and wonder, how did I get here? Why is my life so miserable? I absolutely hate it. It can't possibly get any worse. Maybe you were in a relationship that a significant other broke it off with you, and when you asked why, they said they've just had enough. Your selfishness, your poutiness, your anger, your negativity. Or maybe you've been let go of a job from a job again, right? Because they, they told you you're stubborn, you're unteachable, or maybe you're in the throes of an addiction and, and there's this habit that's strangling you, taking over your life and driving away the people around you who really care about you. And so even though we might never find ourselves in a literal pigsty, I think a lot of us know what it's like to be there symbolically. Where you think... In this moment, my life cannot get possibly any worse than it is right now at this moment. And so this past week, as I was preparing this message, as I was reflecting on this idea of rock bottom and the lowest of the low, there's a word that kept coming to my mind. And that word is shame. Shame. Shame can be one of the most powerful and debilitating emotions we'll ever experience. Now, people often use the words shame and guilt interchangeably, and while they're similar, they're not the same. I, I like the way that Christian author and counselor David Paulison makes the distinction. He says this, that guilt is the awareness of our failures against some kind of standard, right? We've broken God's laws or we've broken the law, and, and there's guilt, right? Shame, listen to this, shame is the awareness of our failure in the eyes of someone else. Shame is the awareness of our failures in the eyes of someone else. Could be that we've failed in the eyes of others. Could be that we've failed in the eyes of God. Could be that we've failed in our own eyes and who we think we ought to be. And that failure can lead us to deep embarrassment, which in turn can then drive us into utter despair. And what's tricky about shame is that there's such a thing as true shame and false shame, right? See, some shame is legitimate. It really is. That after Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, were later found out by God, he asked them, why were you hiding, God asked. And Adam replied, I was afraid or I was ashamed, so I hid. Right? 
But too often, even if there is true shame involved, false shame can also worm its way into our hearts and the effects can be devastating. See, true shame says something like this, I'm sorry I made a mistake. False shame says, I'm sorry I, I am a mistake. That's what false shame can do to us. Now, the reason I'm talking about shame like this is because shame often finds us when we're at the lowest of the low, right? And some of you here today know exactly what I'm talking about. You've made some mistakes. You feel like you've let others down. You've let God down. You've let yourself down. And there might be some true shame that you've got to work through, but chances are you're also bombed by false shame, where deep down inside you feel like, and you truly believe, I am a mistake. I am a mistake. See, here's where the prodigal son finds himself right now in this parable. He has hit rock bottom. In some sense, he really should be ashamed of how he's treated his father, right? I mean, that's a case of true, genuine shame. But how he's treated his father is different from where he finds himself now. Here he is rolling around in the mud, surrounded by pigs, fighting for their food. How do you not at that point move from I made a mistake to I am a mistake? Rock bottom. So back to the parable, what happens next? Verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. This is his moment of awakening, right? This is when he looks in the mirror and thinks to himself, what's happened to me? And in the first time in a long time, he's actually honest with himself. He's honest with the reality of his situation. I mean, he looks around and says, oh my gosh, what a mess. And so he comes up with a plan. He says this, I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You know, again, I'm blown away at how relatable Jesus is because have you ever done something like this? I know I have, right? You need to apologize to someone else you've offended, but you're absolutely scared to do it. And so you talk it over in your mind again and again and again, exactly what you're going to say down to the very last word. That's what he's doing here. I mean, it's all too real, isn't it? And so you got this younger son who has been so far away from his father in more ways than one. He's going to swallow his pride, and he's about to take the biggest risk of his life. So what happens next? Well, Jesus is about to tell us, but before we read how he described it back then in the first century, I thought I'd first show you what it might look like if Jesus told that exact same story today. And so for the next five minutes, let's take a look.
Hey, Dad. It's Mark. I, uh, I know I, I'm probably the last person you're expecting to hear from right now. But I'm, uh, I'm home. Now you're home. I'm actually standing on your front porch. I, uh... Look, I just want to tell you that I know I haven't been, you know, the best son. Look, I guess what I'm trying to say is... I'm, so, I'm sorry for that, Dad. You know what? I don't know what I'm doing, all right? You've been fine without me? You know, I'm sure you continue to be fine without me. I, uh... I won't bother you no more, Dad. All right. I'm just sorry. Sorry about everything. Bye. Um, we've been having a problem with our dust filtration system here, and um, uh, I've seen that a few times, and wow. Verse 20, and when he arose and came to his father, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but, but, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, which by the way, this is what you do for a son, not a servant, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Celebrate. One sheep, one coin, one son. All were lost, but eventually found. They came back to their rightful home, and all these homecomings were cause for great celebration, especially that last one. You know why? Because more than anything else, people matter the most to God. People matter the most to God. You, me, we matter to God. Now, as some of you know, this isn't the end of Jesus' parable. He goes on to introduce us to another son, an older of the two brothers, who's quite frankly upset by over the, the fuss everyone's making over the younger brother and his return to home. And the story of the older brother is certainly worth exploring at another time because his story shows us that we can look so put together on the outside and yet still be so far from God on the inside. Certainly a lesson and a warning for all of us here, but for the sake of time and really to get back to the heart of the parable, you need to know that this story in the end, it isn't really just about the prodigal son. Sure, he's a main character, no doubt about it, but the star of this parable is a loving, welcoming, forgiving father. I mean, that's why Jesus ultimately told this parable, to confront our wrong notions about God and to replace those with a true picture of what our Heavenly Father is really like. See, Jesus wants us to know, Jesus wants you to know that you're never too far from God. Never. Shame will try to convince you that you have done too much, that you've gone too far for God to ever take you back, but that is a lie from the pit of hell. And then to top that off, your self-centered pride is also going to want to keep you captive by telling you that if people ever really find out who you are and what you've really done, then your life's going to be over forever. But that's a lie too. Now, I'm not going to sugarcoat it because getting to a place of honesty and humility like that is anything but easy. But that's where it starts. Just like the parable, when he came to himself. There really is hope for everyone. Hope not just for the religious goody two-shoes we saw at the beginning of the parable, but hope for everyone, even the outcasts who've blown it in the past, even the outcasts who feel judged by others. There is hope for them too. There is hope for you too. Because life is not ultimately defined by what you've done, where you've been, or how far you feel from God. No, there is a shame-busting Heavenly Father who's watching who's waiting for you to come back home, to come back home. You are not too far from God. You're never too far from God. Don't let the, sh the shame and those lies keep you in bondage. Sure, you've made some mistakes, but don't believe the lie that you are a mistake. No, God loves you more than you can imagine, so much so that he gave his, up, his son Jesus up for you on the cross to bring you back to himself, right? Because God's love for you is a passionate love. It's a reckless love. And it's a love that holds nothing back. Nothing. There's no shadow he won't light up. There's no mountain he won't climb up. There's no wall he won't kick down. There's no lie he won't tear down. There isn't anything, not even the bondage of shame, that can keep us from the love of God. No, our Father, our loving Heavenly Father, is passionately pursuing us with everything he's got. So here's what I want to tell you. Return the favor. Make your move. Come back home to God. Because when you do, you're going to find he's there waiting for you with arms 
wide open, ready to embrace you and welcome you back. You're never too far. See, a lot of us in this room, we know what that's like, and we want everyone else to experience the same thing. It's incredible, amazing love that God has, so come back home to God. And when you do, all of heaven is going to rejoice. All of heaven rejoices because more than a lost sheep, more than a lost coin, people, you matter the most to God. You are not too far from God, and you're never too far from his great love for you. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you that when Jesus could have um, given a Roman numeral capital A, subpoint number one, small letter B, detailed outline trying to describe your love, he instead chose a story, a story we can relate to about parents and their children, about a father and a son, and the joy that happens with a reunion, a joy that defies all expectations, that crushes all fears, that we will be rejected, that you, our Heavenly Father, wants to welcome us back home. So today, Lord, may today be the day that the bonds of shame are broken and that the grace of our God takes over. Lord, this is a message for everyone, but it's especially for some people here because it's time. It's time for them to come back to you. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you that in honesty and humility, there's a recognition of a desperate need of your great love. And so today, may we make that move And God, wherever we stand, let us be reminded, refreshed, encouraged by a love that is so passionate that we can never be too far from you. God, thank you too for this song we're going to respond with. Because you're about tearing down lies, not just the lies we believe in our head, but the lies that have gripped our heart, the lies that you want to bust wide open and replace with the light of your truth that frees us that brings us into your family and lets us know that we are home. So God, let us make the move. Let us return the favor. Let us come back to you and experience your embrace anew and afresh in Jesus' name. Amen. Billy and the team is going to lead a song in response called Reckless Love. We've done it before. And I just want to say this. We don't normally do this at Hopevale, but if you feel like you need to sing this to God, and as we stand, if you want to come just to the front and sing that to the Lord, we, we want you to do that. The eyes aren't on you. This is about you and the Lord. And if you just feel like you need to commit your life to the Lord anew and afresh, and to experience his passionate, reckless love like you never have before, and extend that to you. So Billy, team, why don't you go, go ahead and lead this song.
Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so kind to me.
you're never too far. You're never too far. God's there waiting to welcome you home. Next week's Easter. Can't wait. It's going to be great. Look forward to seeing you there as well as our communion services Thursday night at 6 and 7.30. But as you go from here, may you go on the freedom that's found in the reckless love of our God for you. God bless you.